Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to this special edition, uh, COP26 edition of Planet Pod, brought to you in partnership with COP26 Universities Network and the University of Strathclyde. My name's Amanda Carpenter and my guests today are both involved in law and climate change, but from very different perspectives. Professor Lisa Van Haller is a professor of political science at UCL and lead investigator for CLAD, the politics of climate change, loss and damage, where she explores the role of law, legal norms and legal actors in political processes and social change. Welcome, Lisa, and thanks so much for joining us. I'm so delighted to be here, Amanda. My second guest is perhaps on the sharper end of legal practice. Michael Watson is a partner at the law firm Pinsent Mason, and he heads up the firm's work on climate and sustainability, working with businesses around infrastructure and finance for climate change projects. Michael, welcome. Thanks for being here. Lovely to be here. Lisa, maybe I could start with you. Um, your work focuses on loss and damage, and there may be people listening to the podcast who aren't quite sure what that means. Would you be able to perhaps give us a little insight and an explanation? Yeah, sure. And they won't be the only ones that don't know what that means, because there's a lot of ambiguity around the idea. There is actually no official UN definition of what climate change, loss and damage is. Um, but basically what we're talking about when we talk about loss and damage are the adverse impacts of climate change. So what happens, for example, when we have extreme weather events like hurricanes or cyclones or flooding, and what kind of impact does that have on people's lives? You might also think of it in terms of slow onset events. So particularly sea level rise is one that's really important for the small island developing states that are here at COP, Um, but also considering things like kind of prolonged heat waves or droughts and the impact that has, for example, on crop production. So we're talking about kind of a whole motley crew of issues when we think about loss and damage. We think about um, kind of non-economic losses, so loss of life, impacts on health, loss of culture. Um, people's changing livelihoods. We think about kind of mass movements and migration of people that tends to fall under that loss and damage category. And really what we've seen kind of in the way that climate policy has developed, particularly at the international level, is kind of the first decade of the UN regime was really focused on mitigation, trying to reduce emissions. And then we started to realize, you know, we we need to keep focusing on on mitigation, but we also need to start paying attention to how we're going to adapt to some of these climate impacts that um, that are going to happen despite our efforts to mitigate and our failure to do so to some extent. And then about a decade ago, you know, um, uh, a lot of small island developing states began to argue that actually there are going to be impacts that we're not going to be able to adapt to, and that's going to result in these kind of um, range of losses and damages. And so it's emerging in some ways we can think about it as a third pillar of climate policy. Incredibly important because for many of us, you know, I guess for many people listening to this podcast, we're kind of one stage removed. And when we think about climate change impacts as perhaps a little bit of adverse weather, you know, we've had particularly heavy rainfall. A lot of people getting to trying to get to COP on Sunday spend a lot of time on stationary chains because the lines were down and because we'd had some free weather. But but we're actually so far removed from some of that really sharp impact, aren't we? And the loss and the damage to those communities is intense, isn't it? I mean, it it can be a whole, you know, a whole island being washed away. And, you know, you hear examples of of communities where, you know, the burial grounds, the the cemeteries in their communities are being literally washed into the sea. So it's a, a, if you like, it's a whole 
I suppose it's a lifetime away from some of the experiences that we've got here. And yet we are trying to bring that into the conversation. And are we doing that successfully, do you think, at COP and elsewhere? Yeah, it's a really good point. And, and it, it, because it is such a kind of broad range of issues and, you know, different countries and different communities and different individuals are going to feel these impacts really differently. Um, but as you point out, it's, you know, this has become an existential question for some states. So if we think about the difference between, for example, 1.5 degrees of warming versus two degrees of warming by the end of the century, that means that certain small island states in the Pacific are not going to exist anymore. And we heard kind of a one of the activists from Samoa speaking at the Leader Summit yesterday saying, you know, um, if we commit to, to two degrees of warming, that's a death sentence. If we agree to try and achieve 1.5 degrees, that gives them a fighting chance. So that's really kind of what we're talking about when we think about loss and damage. The question about whether it's a success is a hard one, and I think the jury is still very much out on that one. So institutions have begun to develop around this. There is policy making that's happening um, that kind of all kicked off at the COP in 2013 in Warsaw. You know, institutions began to be put into place. I've been watching that committee that's responsible for kind of developing some of that policy, establish some of those expert groups, and, and I have to say progress is pretty slow. And there's a lot of politics, and it's very contentious, and it continues to be very contentious even in these negotiations. Yeah, and we have just had, uh, just today, another high-level commitment to, to sticking to 1.5 degrees, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah, and we're really hearing leaders speak about this issue of loss and damage differently. So Boris Johnson talked yesterday about, you know, we have we have a duty. Joe Biden talked about an overwhelming responsibility to aid smaller countries and both made specific references to loss and damage. So for the first time, we're hearing kind of developed states really, I think, kind of changed tack. Um, but this issue of liability and compensation is one that makes these developed countries very, very nervous when we think about who's responsible for climate change and how are they going to be held responsible. Um, something else we saw happen yesterday was the leaders of Antigua and Barbuda and Tuvalu at a press conference announced uh, kind of the idea of establishing a commission to explore possibilities for climate litigation, looking um, kind of outside of the UNFCCC process to think about how do we kind of manage that justice relationship in terms of liability and responsibility. And I thought that was a really interesting move, particularly at the beginning of COP. And I think in some ways it was quite a strategic, savvy move in relation to kind of what's going to happen on climate finance uh, in this particular COP. And so we'll see what comes out of that. But they're exploring things, for example, like using the tribunal um, for the law of the seas, right? If, if entire islands are going to disappear, what happens to the kind of sea territory around where that island was? Who has kind of jurisdiction over that? So really kind of tricky, interesting legal questions to, to come out of this. Um, and so I think, you know, the, these countries are really thinking about um, what does success look like here and pushing for that, but also beginning to explore other potential avenues to, to think about some of these issues on how do we, how do we, how do we, you know, manage that loss at a community level, at a regional level, at a national level, and at the international level? Are we going to kind of step up to our responsibilities there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a huge agenda. I mean, a huge agenda. And, and Michael, it's interesting, isn't it, that Lisa's talking about liability and law and so much of what underpins this COP is not just that late into the night, deep, detailed negotiation, getting into the granular detail, but it's also the frame and the reference of law and lawmaking. And, and you know, you sit in a very different place because obviously you're on the sharp end of, of delivering you know, some of the support and initiatives and infrastructure around activities that are happening here in the UK. 
around your clients trying to, you know, take step up to their responsibilities about climate change and, and you know, you're there giving them the right kind of legal advice. Yeah, so it's really interesting. And one point, at, you know, at a high level, I'm going to pick up there that you're talking about, so it was this, the 1.5 degrees. And, you know, I think what a lot of our clients globally are looking for in a COP is this sort of signposting about the direction of travel and the pace of regulation and change, the compulsion versus the enlightened self-interest that many uh, clients have been have been engaged in so far. And, and, and the narrative, one of the key points, I think, this week in COP is this 1.5 degrees and listening to you and really understanding the criticality of that and the importance of it for, for those fragile states, which we fully understand. But on the other hand, some of the narrative that's beginning to emerge around, you know, every tenth of a degree matters, um, you know, and, the, and the, you know, let's have another COP in a year's time where we refresh the NDCs, etc. I don't know exactly how that narrative is building, but it feels to me like it's building towards an outcome that might be above 1.5 degrees and then almost be a kind of, not an out, but it feels like a compromise that's emerging. And and I suppose, taking your point, Amanda, the question is, from our class perspective, is they they need clarity, both in terms of the outcome from COP and then how that translates into national regulation and laws that they they need to comply with or do do better than. And at the moment, there's a real vacuum between these kind of high-level statements and policies, partly because the underpinning, uh, well, science is clear, but the underpinning objective is not yet fully established at COP. And I think that's a really interesting point. And I guess that's why, you know, with many of my clients, we're we're circling the the outskirts of the secure zone here in in Glasgow, really trying to get that sense and try and get that understanding. So I I think that's a very interesting high-level point, you know, that that I think would be worth exploring. Do you think, though, just from a, a really commercial point mm. of view, it matters terribly if if there isn't that certainty? I mean, we're all we've been talking about one point five degrees for a long time. Yeah. We've a lot of organisations, and yours included, have committed to net zero, which means being on a trajectory for reducing emissions within the one point five degrees or below. Mm. So, if we've already established that as a frame of thinking commercially and as a narrative that people can begin to understand in their businesses. Mm. And we can say, okay, we're going to shape future activities around, you know, more renewables or emissions reduction or changes in behaviours in organisations. Do we need that certainty and that change and shift at government level? Or is it is it enough for us to continue to say this is the right thing to do and we can stay on that path irrespective of whether or not our leaders at COP 26 or 27, um, decide that actually it's 1.7. Yeah. I mean, is that, you know, is there, a, do you feel there's enough of a commercial incentive now for people to say, yeah, I can cope with 1.5, I know what that means, I've got certainty about that, I can implement some of those changes in my organisation. So, so the, there is, I, I mean, there's a lot of, everyone understands that, and I think, you know, the, the what is established, the question is the higher, both at COP and in terms of the commercial uh, client base that, that, we, that we're involved with. I would have said I've been super impressed with the pace of change in the private sector, you know, and particularly the role of the finance community, the investors and so on, driving change through their invested companies, through corporates, uh, who all are really now engaged with that process. And you know, for a long time, I've been really enthused by that and by the power of that enlightened self-interest, if you like, that I, I described earlier. But I think two, two things occur to me. One is... Economically, you always have that kind of free freeloader issue that not everybody does it, and 
um, you know, criticising our tax that, but, but the pace of change can only be accelerated, I think, through through regulation. And, and listening to the, to the real challenge you were talking about there, Lisa, in terms of the states, you know, I, don't, I think bringing that into the consciousness of the whole world, there's still a, there's still a way to go there. And, and I think even the most forward-thinking corporate or private sector organisation would struggle as an independent body to do that without greater guidance and, and regulation. So I think where I come at this personally, and you know, something we've commented on this, you know, much greater regulation falling out of a corporate related events and proper carbon pricing really are the two key things that we need to see uh, um, as an outcome from, from this process. So the short answer to your question is um, I think there's a lot of really good behaviour, really good self-interest, really good you know, unselfish behaviour by, by corporates, by, by investors, and particularly you know, this understanding, you know, people like Mark Carney have really stimulated that you know that this medium term thinking is critical. You know, you, 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 it's, it's the one area of practice I think I've ever come across in my professional career where the pace of change will be quicker than uh, we anticipate now. Everything else, you know, the role of technology and the exchange of work, that's all taking a lot longer than we thought. But climate change and its impacts will be much faster. A lot of that, I believe, our clients really, and people we work with, really do understand. We certainly do as well. But we still need regulation and carbon pricing, I think, to kind of generate the pace of change that's required. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think I think something that's kind of coming coming implicitly out of what you're saying, I, I think, is the role of science in this. And actually, with the kind of sixth assessment report of the IPCC, so the scientists who support kind of our, our thinking and kind of policy development and climate change, um, you know, kind of produced a report uh, came out in August this year, and, and my colleague, my colleague Salim Hook from Bangladesh, has called this the, the loss and damage IPCC report because what's become very clear is the kind of linkages now between climate change and adverse weather impacts, and kind of increasingly we're better understanding the slow, slow onset impacts as well, and um, so this kind of attribution science linking particular events with the kind of causes is becoming a lot more clear. And so in that way, there's this you know, kind of imperative coming from the scientific community to act now in a way, to, you know, and, and, in, and in that way, I think kind of corporations are, are, are aware of what's going on in the science as well. And so there's kind of marrying those kind of three different um, sets of actors in terms of thinking about, um, you know, what is, what is the role of regulation and what types of regulation? What are the role of these non-state actors who have a lot of power? Um, and a lot of money to bring to these solutions. And when we think about loss and damage, for example, the insurance industry has played a really important role in thinking about kind of shaping um, what that looks like and what financial solutions might might look like. And, and there's been some criticism from particular analysts that too much of it has been focused on insurance. There are certain kinds of impacts we're not going to be able to insure against, and, and you know, that insurance will flow in certain places, and you'll have winners and losers from that. And so we need to think more holistically about finance when we think about um, kind of addressing this problem, but but the science is definitely uh, the kind of improvements in the science are definitely helping us advance the way that we think about this problem. I completely agree with that. I've been really struck by the extent to which that kind of joint joined up conversation between the scientists and the lawyers have actually really helped clients uh, understand and adapt their strategies and accelerate their, their strategies. I think if I was to go back, you know, a, a, a short while, a year or so, you would see within large corporate clients, the pace of change at different different levels. As a, I don't know, maybe the chief execs 
office understanding the, the science, but in other parts, the operational part of the business, maybe not quite at the same pace. And when you have a joined up conversation about the impact of the science, the impact of regulation, financial impact, and try and operate across the, that, that large corporate client so that the, the understanding moves together, I think that you see much better coordinated change and greater commitment towards uh, net zero targets that really make a difference. So, yeah, it should be exciting, actually, in terms of a multidisciplinary approach, um, which is absolutely needed, of course. Yeah. yeah. It strikes me that what frames this COP is, is, a, is a whole, if you like, kind of circle network of different organisations perceiving what needs to be done, not always talking to each other, but beginning to talk to each other in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have done, you know, 18 months ago. So, as you've been saying, Michael, the, the importance of the role of business, you know, because we cannot do this without business. Um, you know, we need both the investment and the finance and the systems to work, but then people also need the jobs and the employment, which is what, you know, business and organisations bring. The science that informs it, the kind of, if you like, the, the social context and the you know, the agitators and the, the protesters on the street. And, and, you know, they're being kept very much at arm's length. I mean, it, it is a bit like a police... You can hear the helicopters outside. It's a bit like a police state down there at the Armadillo. But 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 that's an important part of that dynamic as well, isn't it? Because it's, it's the humanising of some of this. So it, it, it's allowing people to enter this conversation, this debate, at whichever level they come in at, and yet connect with other people across the, the, the whole climate conversation. So, you know... And no doubt by the end of the week, the streets will be filled with young people, obviously, because there'll be a climate strike on Friday, I suspect. Um, but that's an important part of that debate too, isn't it? So I think it's this, it feels to me as if the ground has shifted slightly and it's now okay for us to all talk to each other in a way perhaps that we didn't talk to each other in around previous cops or, uh, you know, uh, perhaps, you know, just even 18 months or so again. Or am I just being hugely naive here and optimistic? <laughs> I've got two quick thoughts on that, and the, the two words are collaboration and safe space. I mean, collaboration, absolutely, the scale of the challenge requires the collaboration across all of those, which is all those groups that you've talked about there, and, and everybody coming together. So that kind of breaks down the kind of historic sort of competitive nature that used to exist between different parts of society, different parts of business, etc. And the safe space point, I think, is really important as well. The range of Understanding here, at least obviously you're at one end of the spectrum in terms of your deep expert knowledge, but the rest of us are somewhere on the spectrum between expert and you know amateur, or even gifted amateur in some cases. But be creating a space and clients, you find that with clients reaching out and saying, you know, can I just have a coffee and a conversation on a one-to-one basis, just because they feel uncertain about the level of knowledge and expertise elsewhere. But it's pulling everybody along in that kind of um, safe space. I think is really important as well. Those are the two things that really strike me about that, that, that topic. Yeah, yeah, I really agree with that. I think it's really important to kind of be able to have these conversations and make it accessible. I mean, thinking about kind of the, the people on the street and the activists, and particularly the young people who are so inspiring, and I think it's absolutely fundamental that they're here. I think there's a frustration in the venue itself about observers thus far not being kind of given access to the negotiations and being able to observe in the way that we would like to and and I think that's you know that transparency is really important in in that process right to kind of generate legitimacy 
for what's being done to ensure that civil society is there, to ensure that the kind of constituencies, the research constituencies, the women's constituency, the indigenous people's constituency are there and they you know, they don't have a seat at the table, but that they be there and at least observing and um, it is really fundamental. And so I think there are real questions, I suppose, about how this is going to develop over the next few days and, and particularly as the leaders kind of start to leave and security doesn't need to be kind of as tight as it as it has been. But, um, you know, the, this is very much, you know, it's constantly referred to in the negotiations as a party-driven process, right? This is driven by states, but we all understand now that actually all parts of society have a role to play in this. And in some ways, I think the UN has a little bit of catching up to do to make sure that all of those voices are heard in those conversations. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, it probably is a facet of both, you know, the intense security needed for having, you know, leaders of all of the major global states, countries in the world just sitting down the road. So that's one thing, and you can accept that. But also, you know, the kind of post-COVID impact, I think, and perhaps an anxiety about that. But, But we neglect and ignore those voices at our peril, don't we? I mean, and we need to engage them. And I'm quite struck, too, by the the connectivity of, you know, particularly lawyers in the legal profession bringing their expertise into some of the climate conversations in a way that they haven't done in the past and the rise of, you know, the the law communities in some cases really stepping up to the challenge, being prepared to have those difficult conversations about which clients they will and won't work with um, and where they sit on that and also offering expertise into the conversations within academia and within you know within the, the not-for-profit sector and the NGOs as well. So, you know, the rise of pro bono, the rise of expert um, knowledge sharing. And that's absolutely vital because I think that the academics have been good at that in the past. I think universities and academic institutions have been good at going out and sharing. And I'm not sure the profession has been as good at coming in and taking and supporting. So, but there's definitely a shift there, isn't there, Michael? There's definitely a shift with with more connectivity across yeah. some of those boundaries. You're absolutely right. I was at a, uh, an event last night sitting next to a chief executive of one of our clients, and they asked the usual question, sort of, what's the legal industry like today? And, you know, what, what's like, you know, expecting some sort of, um, or I don't expect us to be sort of negative or, or downbeat. And I would say, uh, you know, Never has there been a better time, a more exciting time in the context of climate sustainability to, to be a lawyer, to enter the profession. Um, the, the opportunity to, to draw on all of that expertise, to create new products and solutions to, I mean, the idea was always to help clients answer the question, what should I do, which is a combination of understanding the law, regulation, how the law might change, and the fast-changing environment we've just discussed. I think it's a super exciting time to, to be a lawyer. But it involves a much more multidisciplinary approach, reaching into those academic institutions we collaborate with a range of universities and academic organizations in a much more intense way than I think we have in many other areas. Um, and we've also, for example, here's another thing. So we've also recognized that uh, in, in my role as the head of climate sustainability across the, business, across the firm, you know, we've got an obligation to bring everybody's expertise levels up. So it's a very much a distributed leadership model. We want everybody to be experts or to be better than they were yesterday in the context of ESG. So we're rolling out training both internally and using some some uh, support from, from other universities to, to upskill everybody. So it's not like we're going to create some sort of elite climate sustainability experts. We're going to make everybody experts such that, you know, Everything we do will incorporate aspects of an understanding, a better understanding of ESG and climate sustainability considerations. So, all of that makes it a very exciting time. But it, I'm saying, certainly in the UK context, I mean, I'm responsible across the whole firm, but 
lawyers of different different countries a bit as well in terms of their background and the way they've operated with business. You know, over the last 20, 30 years in the UK, I would say at times the legal profession has allowed itself to be sort of narrowed a bit in terms of the way it responds to business. And this, to my mind, this is an opportunity to open that back out again and actually become what, what I think lawyers all should be, which are more broad-based advisors in that, in that context. And I could go on with that one but, uh, mm. in terms of market share, but that's a bit more granular. But, uh, that, that, you know, it makes a more interesting profession, more interesting career, but it requires a slightly different mindset as well. I think it's something all lawyers have to be thinking about. My um, colleague Cesar Rodriguez-Garavito at NYU has written recently about climatizing human rights. And I'm doing some work at the moment thinking about national human rights institutions and how they need to be thinking about equality and human rights and how climate change is going to shape that. And so we're seeing this kind of intersection between climate change and, and lots of different areas of law that's that's kind of really interesting and really productive and, and focusing a lot on kind of some of the difficult and adverse impacts, but also the opportunities when you start to think about climate change. So, you know, what does that mean when we talk about the rights of future generations or young people or what does it mean for disabled people, for example, when we take climate action? And how do we make sure that we incorporate kind of disability considerations when, when we're taking action on climate change? Um, so, yeah, there's kind of a lot. It's an exciting time to be thinking about, about climate change across a variety of different spheres of law and uh, legal activity. Yeah, and that is essentially what COP's about, isn't it? It's bringing together, you know, the those big strands of policy making and decision making and then actually getting down into the detail which will require a change in law and legislation require the best of our legal brains as well as the best of our academic brains to shape something that works as a framework moving forward that is realistic that is practical and taking that out and it's it's I mean it's a big and a difficult job and I'm I'm saddened to hear you say that the observers are being kept at arm's length I hope that changes and that's certainly something that that Chris was talking about yesterday in our podcast is that you know you're there but you feel like you're in a whole separate conference so so that that needs to change because you know the, the people making those decisions need to be open to to observation and to criticism yeah I, I think as you point out there's a balance to be struck in terms of kind of security and protection and um, and the COVID issue, which remains ever-present, of course. Um, but I think we all benefit when more people are at the table and voices are included. Yeah. And what would be your kind of one hope, Michael, from this? I mean, you're, you know, you're up here in Glasgow, you, you're, you're involved as a, as a local law firm in some activities. You're, you know, you've hosted a dinner, you're hosting a, a big talk tonight. What would be your hope for, for coming out of COP? What would you be looking for as, the, you know, the one or two things that you think will help you in your sphere of work, but also us, you know, globally. Okay, there's two things, I think, probably, if you allow me two things there, just in the question. So, so one, I think I come back to this point, as much certainty as possible in terms of what the, what the, the outcome of the, the NDC process is in terms of the like, likely regulation. We hosted an event for clients before COP, which looked at the science and made some predictions from using, um, looking at the, the political aspects of how COP would operate. But really what our banks are interested in is you know, what's the certainty we can give them and if you know, the outcome can be as specific as possible and there are clearly some signs that there will be some specific outcomes, then we can advise them and help advise them you know, ahead of the implementation of the laws and regulations that will follow, but at least with a degree of certainties. So that would be one point in terms of practical outcome. Uh, the other one is inspiration, I think, actually. We t- talked on this point earlier and it's very easy in a lot of these discussions to be overwhelmed almost by the scale of the, ch- the challenge and um, we need inspirational leadership and we need to be inspired ourselves individually 
to take action. And uh, yeah, we're really looking for that. And I think you're looking at that at two levels. One, we can all leave um, and observe, thinking what can we do personally, and that's often quite a good way just to kind of move things forward. But also, I'm hoping for some inspirational leadership across the across the piece to uh, across the piece to really. Um, yeah, leave us uh, inspired and energised to get an extra 10% of effort that everybody's going to need for the next phase. So those would be my two, uh, as I appreciate they may be quite ambitious, but uh, we need to be. We need to be ambitious. How about you, Lisa? Yeah, mine's not short on ambition either. Um, you know, we've been talking about loss and damage in, in the UN regime for about a decade now, and there's been a lot of kind of activity and, and kind of institutions set up and committees and expert groups. And um, But I think you know, what would be really promising coming out of this COP. And I, and I am fairly hopeful, kind of surprising to find myself hopeful that um, that there's climate finance to back that up, that, that kind of finance for loss and damage, like focused activities that is new and additional to what's already been promised, um, I think would really go a long way in kind of in, in helping to inspire people in some of those countries that are really kind of on the front lines of the adverse impacts of climate change. So that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. So you're behind that kind of the, the the one billion. Is it one billion we need a year, or is it even more than that? Uh, yeah. It's yeah. It's uh, what was it? Hundred hundred billion US billion a year. US, and yeah, there's a gas billion, at the yeah. moment and twenty yeah. billion. But and loss and damage finance. It's a little bit fuzzy. Kind of where it fits in with that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I'm hopeful. And you know, Canada and Germany have put forward this proposal. So let's see. Let's see what kind of comes of all yeah. of that. Yeah. It's early days, isn't it? So. Yeah. I was just going to mention in the context of billions and millions, um, we talked earlier about collaboration um, between professionals and one of the initiatives we're involved in in terms of collaboration across the legal community, both uh, in-house and private practice law firms, is is the Million Hours Pledge, which I think is an illustration of the opportunity for all lawyers in this context to collaborate together to donate through the One Million Hours Pledge. Um, a million hours to combat climate change and biodiversity loss. And what we're hoping to do is encourage that collaboration you know, in a selfless way across the legal, legal industry and then for those hours to be donated um, through a governance structure to, to projects that support pro bono projects that support these activities. And I think you know, the rationale there is to encourage that kind of collaboration, which we're very excited about. Yeah. So I'll definitely mention that. A million hours is quite a lot. So that is that UK only, or is that globally? A million hours globally over three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that could be transformational for a small organisation that's wrestling with some of these issues, couldn't it? So well, exactly. I think that's right. I mean, some of the the, the points we just discussed earlier in terms of nation states that are under, um, you know, they require legal support and good legal support to to really fight the corner. Yeah. So yeah. we're not frightened of big numbers, <laughs> 100 billion and a million hours. And Lisa, I'll give you the, I'll give you the, the closing words because yeah. we should, sadly, we should draw this to a close, but it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you both. Uh, yeah, maybe I could just say that that sounds fantastic and kind of particularly small uh, small states have small delegations that are trying to cover a lot of the topics in the, in the negotiations, whereas, you know, you compare that to kind of very well-resourced states. So it very much feels like an all-hands-on-deck situation. So it sounds like a fantastic initiative. Thank you both. A huge thank you to my guests, to Mike and Lisa, and thank you for joining us and giving us another insight into to COP26 here in Glasgow. Um, you've been listening to Planet Pod. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, or if you have a topic you want us to discuss, just email beth at theplanetpod.com. And thanks for listening, and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. 
and to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.